Hi, I'm Dan Permack, and welcome to Axios Recap, presented by Morgan Stanley. Today is Monday, April 19th. Stocks are down, vaccine eligibility is opened up to all U.S. adults, and all eyes are on a courtroom in Minneapolis. Closing arguments begin today in the trial of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin, who's accused of murdering George Floyd last May. A verdict could be reached by the jury as early as late this afternoon, at least in theory, although it's unlikely to be read before tomorrow. Three things to know about what's happening inside the courtroom, and then one thing outside the courtroom. First, the prosecution has argued that Chauvin's actions not only led directly to Floyd's death, but that they were criminal violations of police department policy. This was backed up by a Minneapolis's police chief who took a sledgehammer to the blue wall of silence and also by a Los Angeles Police Department inspector who argued that Chauvin used deadly force when he should have used no force at all. Two, the defense's argument has basically been that it's impossible to know the actual cause of Floyd's death, at least beyond a reasonable doubt. One theory floated by the defense was that Floyd's drug use or heart condition could have played a role, while a defense medical witness suggested carbon monoxide from the police cruiser could have contributed. Chauvin himself declined to testify, citing his Fifth Amendment rights against self-incrimination. Three, when we get a verdict, the headline, of course, will be guilty or innocent. But it may prove a little murkier than that, particularly if the jury says that Chauvin is guilty of manslaughter, but not of murder. Outside the courtroom, Tensions are obviously quite high. Higher, in fact, than when the trial began due to the police killing of a black man named Dante Wright in the neighboring city of Brooklyn Center. All of which is why Judge Peter Cahill has said that any verdict, if it's reached near nightfall, won't be read until the next day. So today we want to speak with Axios Twin Cities reporter Nick Halter about his thoughts on the trial so far, what it's like on the ground, and what comes next. That conversation in 15 seconds. We're joined now by Axios Twin Cities' Nick Halter. Uh, Nick, there have obviously been a lot of kind of high profile, some, some viral moments uh, from the trial so far. Can you take us through kind of what for you have been the most resonant moments, at least kind of starting with the prosecution side? Yeah, I would say the prosecution, the most you know dramatic moments were at the beginning of the state's case, which was bringing up a lot of the bystanders who witnessed George Floyd dying and gave very heart-wrenching testimony about seeing it and the guilt that they felt about it. And then, I, you know, another kind of star witness was there, uh, there was a medical expert, Dr. Tubin, who, I mean, gave very sort of clear and concise testimony about George Floyd dying at, because of a lack of oxygen caused by the knee of, of Derek Chauvin. The kind of the bigger theme of the Blue Wall of Silence breaking down a little bit with, you know, the police chief testifying against him, the longest tenured homicide detective in the city testifying against Derek Chauvin, saying that this was unnecessary and this was not what, you know, officers are trained to do. Did the defense, from your perspective, offer a definitive alternate theory of why George Floyd died, or did they instead throw up a bunch of possible alternate theories? The latter. They did throw just they tried to cloud up the possibility that there was other factors that led to his death. And that could have been uh, fentanyl in his system, methamphetamine in his system, the fact that he had a heart condition. And then sort of late in the game, they brought up the possibility that there was carbon monoxide from the exhaust tailpipe of the car, just throwing in a bunch of possibilities to let the jury know that he could have died of something else. I'm curious, when you talk to legal professionals, uh, whether it be uh, prosecution professionals or defense professionals, do they feel that the prosecution and defense made a stronger case? Is there a consensus from a legal perspective? It it feels like, I don't know if 
if I would say who made a stronger case, but I, th- I think most people think that the prosecution just had a stronger case, whether or not it was a job that they did or just the the evidence, uh, the amount, I mean, the video evidence is such a strong tool. And, and in closing arguments today, the prosecution played it many, many times. There's a lot of video footage of this, and that's kind of their the central to their to their theme. It, it was sort of one one attorney against you know, several. Um, it was, you know, Eric Nelson going against this team of, of attorneys. And some of them were working on this case pro bono and they're big time corporate lawyers. These are very experienced uh, lawyers on the prosecution side. You know, in the midst of this uh, in Brooklyn Center, which outside of Minneapolis, you have the Dante Wright killing by, by another police officer uh, who, who was charged. Can you explain kind of how these storylines and, and even some of the kind of the protests have kind of merged into one? Well, you know, leading into this trial, there was already anxiety. I mean, last summer was so uh, traumatic for for so many different reasons. And so people have sort of been dreading this trial beforehand. And then eight days before, you know, closing arguments, uh, you know, police kill an armed black man in in Brooklyn Center. And protests have, have been every night, and some of them have led to clashes with police. And so it's just heightened the anxiety quite a bit in town here. This weekend was very much, uh, you, you started to see a, a city occupied by by police and by, you know, the uh, National Guard. You mentioned that. So talk to me, you know, when you go and walk around, not not while the trial's ongoing, but say if, if you were in the city on Saturday or Sunday, what's it like? Just help, help, what do you see when you're walking down the street? Saturday was like the first nice day of spring kind of here, a nice weekend day. It was, you know, low 60s and sunny. And it was surreal almost because you had people out on patios drinking and eating and sort of carrying on people who had been, you know, a lot of people have been vaccinated now. But then right across the street, you've got Humvees with National Guard members with, you know, huge guns walking around blocking off streets. But people were carrying on. And so it's sort of a weird juxtaposition of what's happening right now ahead of this verdict. Help me lay out the timeline a little bit. Uh, Closing arguments begin today. They're expected, I think, to also wrap up today. And and then the jury gets it. Is there any consensus on how long the jury could take? And, And is this also, I guess, as part of that, is this standard, the longer the jury takes, the better it is for the defense? Yeah, we don't have a good idea on how long it's going to take. I mean, we could get one tonight, possibly, uh, probably not likely. I mean, I think most people expect if he's found guilty that people probably expect it more tomorrow. Yeah, but I think as you know, the longer it goes on, I would say the worse for the prosecution. I mean, there's just more of a chance of of someone trying to hold out a juror trying to hold out uh, on this and dragging it on. There was an interesting, you know, the chief public defender here, the former chief public defender here, she's been sort of analyzing this. And one of the things she pointed out was that they are sequestered. The jury is sequestered in a hotel until they reach a verdict. And that sort of makes it harder to hold out for a juror that maybe doesn't want to vote guilty because they're stuck in their hotel room. They don't get to go home at night to their families. If they're the lone holdout, it's it's kind of lonely. You know, I mean, they're, they're, they're not going home and refreshing every night. Nick, we obviously understand what it means if he is found not guilty on all charges, but can you break down a little bit more the, the specific charges? He, he could be found guilty of second-degree murder, which, is, which involves intent. He could be found guilty of second-degree manslaughter, which means he killed George Floyd but didn't mean to. And then there's third-degree murder, which is only in three states, which is kind of a middle ground between them. Yeah, there's there's three different charges. There's second degree murder, there's third degree murder, and then there's second degree manslaughter. Um you know, second degree murder is a, a pretty easy and clean one. And I think, you know, protesters and activists I think would view that as a victory. And I, I think, you know, people would expect peace afterwards. 
Third degree is a little bit more muddied because there was an ex-officer here in Minneapolis just recently, a few years ago, convicted of, of third degree murder. And that case is actually being appealed at the Supreme Court. And if it does get overturned, it sort of muddies that conviction for, for Chauvin. So like, there's sort of like a you know, a little bit of concern about the, the third degree one. And then, and then there's manslaughter, which would come with a pretty short prison term, if any prison term at all, which I don't think people would be happy with that verdict that, you know, the protesters would be happy with that verdict. So those are the three options. You, you talked about this prospect that if he is found guilty of manslaughter, there could be unrest for that. And, and you talked about how there are Humvees on the street, et cetera. I mean, is the city preparing for the possibility of seeing again what we saw last May and June? Absolutely. I think, you know, the both the governor and the mayor were pretty harshly criticized last May and June for allowing so much destruction to happen for three straight nights. I mean, we had looting and burning. Um, entire corridors were just destroyed because of this. And so they're very obviously making sure this does not happen again. And frankly, to some criticism, I mean, some people feel like the force is too much. There's too many armed officers around. But I mean, here's the thing, even, you know, the, the, the trial is happening in downtown, but if you go to like a small kind of quaint business node on the periphery of the city or on the edge of the city, there's like National Guard troops like posted up there. So there's opportunists who like wait for a protest to happen and they go rob a liquor store. You know, they've got nothing to do with the protest. They're just waiting for all the cops to go rush, you know, the protest and then they take advantage of it. So they're kind of like not letting that happen this time where there'll be law enforcement and troops like all over the city. Nick, what's been the local reaction to this kind of increased militarized police presence to kind of preempt a, a possible violence? I ask in the context, if you remember last summer, a lot of criticism was aimed at cities and states for having this very militarized police presence, which seemed to kind of foment more violence rather than tamp down on it. Yeah, um, they they are, I would say, you know, the particularly Governor Walls has sort of, he's a Democrat and he has been criticized by the left wing of his party for I mean, because this they they created this joint force with with state police, with city police, and with the Army National Guard, and with some other departments as well. And that group ended up responding to what happened up in Brooklyn Center, and they used tear gas and rubber bullets, and that irked a lot of the left wing of the Democratic Party here. And so, yeah, they're, he's sort of, uh, right now, they're they're kind of uh, revolting against a governor right now. I mean, some have even called for him to step down because of this. But, um, but I think they kind of hold steady, which is that, like, we can't allow what happened last May to happen again. Nick, uh, pull back a little bit. Final question for you. Th- this is obviously a, a discreet case. Jury is, is being asked to make a decision based on the facts they are being given in a courtroom. But pulling it back, what do you think the stakes of this trial are for the nation at large? Well, I think if he's found not guilty, I think there's a legitimate concern for people to say, well, if this if this video surfaces and this is how much evidence we have and in this case, we can't get a guilty verdict. Like, when can when can a police officer be found guilty if if not in this case? And so it does feel like it would be a major defeat to some of the to, to people who are fighting for for some of these um, larger, broader reforms. Um, which is, I mean, what does it take? What does it take to get uh, to convict an officer? Nick Halter of Axios Twin Cities, which you can get at signup.axios.com. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Dan. Welcome back. What we're watching today is Mars, and more specifically, the Ingenuity, which is a NASA helicopter that briefly flew through the Martian atmosphere. 
It's the first time ever that a human-built aircraft has flown on a planet other than Earth, and it's expected to attempt several more flights over the next few weeks, taking photos of what's below. It is, as a NASA project manager put it, a Wright Brothers moment, particularly given the difficulties of taking off and landing on Mars, which not only has less gravity than Earth, but also less than 1% of our surface-level atmospheric pressure. So, not surprisingly, the copter was carrying a little souvenir— a tiny strip of fabric from the Wright Brothers' 1903 flyer. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. It's my producers, Naomi Shaven, Sabina Sangani, and Alex Sugiara. Have a great National Garlic Day, and we'll be back tomorrow with another Axios Recap. <laughs>